Before the break, we asked our guest to speak to surrogate armies and with respect to immigrants and seeking U.S. citizenry was joining the, the service as a way to fast track that process. We return to our interview. Are you familiar with their options of potentially getting fast-tracked towards citizenry by joining the U.S. service? Is that something, is that is that an urban myth, or is that something you're familiar with? It's not an urban myth. It, it has happened, although I, I don't, I'm not an expert on the subject, but I, I do believe as well that uh, the Trump administration, as part of its really repulsive anti-immigrant policies, has actually denied some uh, members of the U.S. military who were immigrants or did not have citizenship denied them gaining citizenship that they, they expected to receive as, as part of their uh, work for the, the U.S. Mm-hmm. military. But is that um, but, you, but you're but you're 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 right to point to um, the various kinds of proxy armies uh, and the long history of that that mm-hmm. uh, that U.S. administrations have have engaged in since at least the nineteen 19- 20s and 30s, um, but this is another. And Nick Terse's work again shows this quite quite well. That in beginning with the George W. Bush administration and Obama administrations, that uh, and again as, as a as a reaction to the protests and, and, and opposition to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in particular, and the understandable anger that that so many have felt with U.S. military personnel, family members coming back in body bags or coming back grievously wounded, either physically or, or mentally, that U.S. administrations have turned to foreign militaries to, to do the fighting, increasingly, along with the use of a smaller number of special operations troops, uh, along with the use of drones, a whole variety of ways to wage war in more covert fashions that will receive less attention from the U.S. public and, and the minds of U.S. leaders will avoid the, the bad PR and the protests. That, that I'm happy to say has uh, arisen, of course, in, in response to the now years of endless war. Very good. I did come across a site that was called militaryonesource.mil, which I presume stands for military. And at the top, the website is part of the U.S. Department of Defense's network of support for the military community. And there was an article on that page dated November 27th, 2020. The title of it was, Your Military Service Offers a Fast Track to U.S. Citizenship. Shorter residency requirements were indicated in the article from five years to just one year of honorable service and other incentives to joining the service. So that is particularly pernicious to me, to try to attract immigrants or those seeking immigration to join the war movement, per se, in order to fast-track their eligibility. That's a matter I really need to look into, and we'll save for another show. Well, let me ask you this, because President Trump just recently vetoed this omnibus legislation that's kind of uh, lingering. It was passed by both houses of Congress, and, and, and for our listeners, an omnibus bill. My understanding is just a single type of document bill that's uh, accepted by a single vote, but can be a combination of diverse elements, which this was. It was a COVID-19 response with the uh, you know personal checks going out. Um, and it was also, though, it was a $1.4 trillion omnibus bill. And there was a piece that was written by Alexander Rubenstein and Jeb Sprague just a couple of days ago 
called COVID-19 Catch-22 Regime Change Policies Compact with U.S. Pandemic Relief. Basically, they, uh, there was a couple of things there that I thought were important to mention and I would like you to comment on. One was the Federal News Network reported that $1.4 trillion omnibus included $671.5 billion allocated to quote-unquote base defense spending with another $77 billion going to overseas contingency operations. In addition to its proposed $600 direct payment to each eligible U.S. citizen, the same piece of legislation was pumping billions of dollars into quote-unquote democracy programs, which we've talked extensively on this show about. We won't get back into those deals, but basically it's a code name for kind of regime change operations in, within civil societies that utilize NGOs. And, and in addition to that, those billions of dollars into these democracy programs through the NED and the United States Agency for International Development and other entities, there's some $6.175 billion for foreign military assistance. And this massive foreign spending uh, is pointed towards serving U.S. foreign policy interests to put into power or keep in power U.S. friendly governments. And that may sound okay. Yeah, we should have U.S. friendly governments, right? But, but what we've been reporting on this show for the last 18 years is extensively on the impact that U.S.-friendly governments have on the majority populations in those countries. And for the past 18 years on the air, we've documented that there is a consistent pattern of much worse quality of life conditions for the majority population when the government we seek to overthrow is overthrown or the government we seek to keep in power is kept in power. But let's leave that aside. We won't get back into Iraq, Libya, and Honduras in 2009, and the Ukraine coup, and the Syria deal, and Yemen, and on and on and on. But we are posting show material and documentation on pedrogatos.org. But instead, tonight's show, really, the focus with our guests is on the breadth of U.S. military bases we have throughout the world, the military spending it takes to exert our foreign policy, the cost of war, not just the U.S. military lives, which are just unimaginably costly uh, and, and to their families, but the much larger tragedy of death and destruction that conflicts throughout the world that we are party to have on the peoples on the world outside of our borders. And, and so with that being said, I came across a piece that you had penned back in the Hill, and I know you've done more recent work, so I'll let you speak to it as you're comfortable, but it, it was called Reckoning with the Costs of War. It's time to take responsibility. And I really want to first applaud you. You're the first writer I have seen that's actually indicated that we as American citizens have a responsibility to rein in our government and its military excesses. But more than that, you go through the estimated, you know, you acknowledge the U.S. losses, which are very significant. And uh, you mentioned that Syria and at least 19 other countries where U.S. troops have fought since this war on terror started in, in uh, October of, I think, 2001. But you go and explain the magnitude of death and trauma in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, and Yemen. Can you briefly let our listeners know what the impact has been in these countries that we're talking about here? Yeah, I, I do think it's important. I'm glad you asked about that because it, it gets so little attention. Uh, you know, if there's been attention to the human costs of the post-9-11 wars, the war on terror, it, it has primarily been on the U.S. military personnel who've been killed and, again, grievously injured so often, and, and which deserves our, our attention and, and focus, um, because, 
thousands, around 15,000 U.S. military personnel and, and military contractors have died in, in those wars that you mentioned. More if you count those who've died by, by suicide and, and died you know, freezing on the streets as, as homeless veterans after returning from war. But uh, sadly, and that, that word doesn't feel weighty enough, but there have been around 250 times as many people who've died in those same countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Yemen, and, and the part of the, the war in Syria that the U.S. troops have participated in. Somewhere between 3.1 and 4 million people have died in those countries as a result of combatants on all sides, combatants, civilians alike. Can, and, you, re- can you repeat that number again, please? I mean, it's just an astounding yeah, no, number. It, it, it is astounding, and, and, and how often do we hear it in the news? 3.1 to 4 million estimated dead in, in those five countries, primarily in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but tens of thousands dying in, in the other countries as well. And, you know, and excuse, me, the excuse, injury, me, Dave, excuse me, David, but this is post-2001 you're talking about. Is that right? Post-2001 period? Oh, yeah. So yeah. We're, we're talking about the human costs, the human effects of the, the post-9-11 wars. So the, the U.S. war that began in Afghanistan in October 2001, and very quickly it was a cross-border war in Pakistan as well. The 2003 onward war in, in uh, Iraq, um, and the war in uh, Yemen and, and Syria as well, that, mm-hmm. that U.S. troops have participated in in a variety of ways. And th- these are only some of the wars the U.S. military has participated in right. since, since 2001. Um, the U.S. military has deployed into combat of one kind or another into 24 countries, at least, that we know of since 2001. 24. So that we're just looking at, at five of the most violent. And so 3.1 to 4 million people, civilians and combatants alike, the vast majority of civilians dead in these countries. The injuries surely run into the tens of millions. A group of students from American University and I uh, working with the Cost of War Project estimated that in those five countries, plus three of the other most violent wars that U.S. troops have have been involved in, the Philippines, Libya, and Somalia, 37 million, an estimated 37 million people have been displaced from their homes, either across international borders as refugees or displaced within their own countries. 37 million people displaced, again, just in these post-9-11 wars. 37 million is about the size of the entire population of Canada. Uh, it's actually the, the size of all the residents of Texas and Virginia combined. Uh, a really astounding. And I think it just speaks to, and the unfamiliarity of most people in the United States with the scale of destruction that these wars have meant for the countries where they've been fought, it speaks to the, the lack of a, a reckoning. The, the real, uh, well, which I think the responsibility there lies first and foremost with our politicians who have not calls upon the country to, to reckon with the damage that these wars have represented. I mean, I, I think it, it's, up to, it's up to citizens to, to ensure the country does reckon, and a lot of work obviously remains to bring that about. I really also just wanted to reiterate what you were saying, because the damage is done, when we're talking about the millions, you're talking about, you know, you said 21 countries? 24 countries, 20, a minimum of 24 countries uh, where right. U.S. troops have deployed into combat. And so the 3.1 to 4 million number that you gave that died, so many of these people, 
have died not from a bomb dropping on them, but the infrastructure of their country being completely destroyed. Water facilities, hospitals. This is what is so disturbing to me is, and we've documented this on this show, in in Iraq, the water system was targeted, and even in uh, in Libya, that you know they were tapping into the largest water aquifer, the sandstone aquifer. They're completely irrigating their whole country from this amazing miracle of a, of a deal was was you know was attacked as well or broken. Also, the concerns in Syria and in Yemen, where water supplies have been compromised in Yemen, resulting in the biggest outbreak of cholera in history. But when we talk about these countries, you know, you mentioned 3.1 to 4 million. If we go before 2001, if we go back into that sanction period of in Iraq that we were a part of, there's another famously 500,000 children and, and, and probably another how many more hundreds of thousands of people perished from that. If we look at, you know, the Vietnam War itself. So this is a history that is just it's just completely forgotten and when you made the remarks that a lot of what you study is pretty depressing i I, what's more depressing to me is the unaccountability and if we don't have people like Mm. you writing about this and not just writing about it documentation in your books is really strong and so with so much disinformation in today's day and age things need to be judged by their merit and their merit is evidence and if the evidence isn't brought forth then it, it shouldn't be assimilated into our you know our consciousness but but we know that's not how that works so meanwhile we know we're told how russia is a huge aggressor all the time and i'm no big fan of russia but i mean you know they didn't invade iraq they didn't invade you know all of these countries we're talking about and the number of bases when you juxtapose those types of things it's really amazing how this impression that we need to, you know, defend ourselves by this, by this, these monies. And that was one thing I wanted to ask you to talk about was the amount of money that goes into defense. You know, you've detailed where all this money is spent, but the amount and as a percentage of our budget and, you know, the kinds of things that obviously we could probably be doing with that money if we had the imagination from John Lennon's song to actually you know, do the right thing. Can you speak to that in the next couple of minutes or so, just about the amount and the impact of the defense budget in our economy? Yeah, I'm glad you, you asked, because I, I think it, and thank you for the nice words about, about my work, any of which builds on a much larger collection of scholars and journalists who've been doing fantastic work in this, this realm. But I'm, I'm glad you asked about the military budget, and I, I'm quite strict about not calling it the defense budget or not, not even calling the agency that controls that budget the Department of Defense, because th- this agency largely has been involved in offensive military actions since World War II and since it was m- more properly referred to as the War Department. The, calling it the Department of Defense is one of the things that obscures what it's actually doing in the world. Similar talk of, of the national security budget. So much of these budgets have bred insecurity. But I'm glad you asked because I'm connecting it to those who've, who've died and, and been injured, displaced in the post-9-11 wars is important because I, I think we have to see the spending that has been plowed into the military machine as another human cost or that as another force that has resulted in horrific human damage. And, and, and here's why. Because, of course, when we spend 
$6.4 trillion, $6.4 trillion with a T. That's the amount of money that the U.S. military and U.S. taxpayers have spent since 2001 on the post-9-11 wars up through October. $6.4 trillion. When we spend that money on war, we create horrific damage in the countries where these wars have been fought, clearly. We also don't spend that money on other things, and that has costs. Uh, we don't spend the $6.4 trillion on, for example, pandemic preparedness, on universal health care, things that could have prevented the roughly 3,000 people are dying a day in the United States. Same number of people who died on during the attacks of 9-11 mm-hmm. are dying every single day. The $6.4 trillion plowed into the war machine since 2001 has done nothing to protect U.S. citizens from the COVID-19 pandemic, let alone other pandemics. It has done nothing to provide health care as a right to everyone. It's done nothing to improve our crumbling public schools, improve our crumbling infrastructure, all the sort of human needs that are damaging uh, the lives of, of U.S. citizens and, and people around the world, for that matter. So I think we have to see uh, among the, the human costs, the human damage that these wars have inflicted, we have to see what we didn't spend the money on. And then COVID, sadly, makes that all too clear. Very good. So I wanted to just go back before closing the show and talk a little bit just from a personal perspective. These two books that you wrote, Base Nation, we indicated that was published in 2015. It sounds like this show has kind of captured some of the high points of how the U.S. military bases abroad harm America and the world. So that's the rest of the title. What is the difference, would you say, between the, these two books? Base Nation, How the U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, and The United States of War, A Global History of Endless American Conflict from Columbus to the Islamic State that was just published this year. Can you explain the values that each book tries to bring forth? Sure, yeah. The Base Nation does take on this, focuses on this huge collection of, of military bases that the United States has maintained primarily since World War II, although in, in some ways there, there were U.S. bases abroad outside of U.S. borders since independence. But it focuses on the post-World War II period and examines, okay, we've had these hundreds and at times thousands of U.S. bases outside the states and and, and even the, the colonies of or territories of the United States, what, what, what impacts have these bases had on the world? Have they made the United States safer, as U.S. leaders have so often claimed? They've claimed that, you know, we need to have bases in Germany and Japan and South Korea, Italy, Honduras, all around the globe. We need them um, to ensure the security of the United States and the security of the globe. We need them to spread democracy. We need them to maintain peace. The book takes on those arguments because for far too long, people just accepted those claims as truth and rarely, if ever, asked people who would make the claims to provide any evidence to back them up. So the book examines what the impacts of U.S. bases abroad have been and what they are to this day and examines not just the security impacts of the bases, but also the impacts of bases on, for example, the environment, on local peoples, on displacing local peoples. That's why I was introduced to the the story of Diego Garcia, a base that was built in the process, displaced an entire indigenous people from their homeland in the Indian Ocean. So that's Base Nation, and, and the subtitle does 
give away the conclusion in a certain sense that, that U.S. bases abroad on the whole have uh, inflicted tremendous harm on a whole range of people from people living near the bases abroad to people in the United States. Uh, and beginning again with the, the cost of these bases that has been, you know, to use President Eisenhower's language, it's been stolen. It's the, the spending on now roughly $51 billion a, a year is spent to maintain U.S. bases abroad, to just to, to run them, to maintain them, and, and often to expand them. That's money that's not being spent on the needs that are so pressing here, here at home. The newer book, The United States of War, takes on the larger war system and looks at the, the long history of U.S. wars that you pointed to uh, quite importantly, the, the wars that, that long predate the, the post-9-11 wars, wars, uh, the first war, Gulf War, the first war in Iraq in 1991, the war in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and then takes it back to independence. And indeed, even before, it takes uh, the history back to the arrival of Columbus in the Americas and the beginning of European imperialism in the Americas, showing how the United States grows out of the European empires and their conquest and colonization of lands across the Americas. Uh, but mm-hmm. it does that not just for the sake of, of telling a history, although that I think is important given the mythologies about U.S. history and the mythologies about about U.S. war in particular, the sort of heroic ideas about U.S. war. But it does it because this is a, a system of war that has shaped all our lives in profound ways, and that's why the book is called The United States of War, that it's not just meant as a metaphor, that the United States has pretty much since independence been a United States of war, and especially in the post-World War II period, period defined, again, to cite President Dwight D. Eisenhower, period that's been defined by the power of the military-industrial complex, this system of war has shaped all our lives in profound ways, whether we know it or not. And that's what the the United States of War takes on. And again, not just to to analyze it for the sake of analysis, but for the sake of changing uh, this system of war and and bringing it to an end, bringing this long pattern of war to an end and and the war machine uh, that includes the military-industrial complex rolling back the power of that complex. And that's where I end up the book with a list of proposals for uh, rolling back the power of the military-industrial complex for Mm -hmm. for ending the endless wars and for for fundamentally transforming the country into, you know, what might sound, well, I think it needs saying, to transform the country into a United States of peace uh, rather than the United States of war that the country has been for far, far too long. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for your time tonight on Christmas Eve. I think it's so, such an appropriate subject. If people want more information, David, about your writings and the articles, I, I know you have a, a website. How can people access your, your other writings? Sure, yeah. People can uh, find out more uh, on two websites. My website, davidvine.net, davidvine.net, as well as basenation.us basenation.us. And basenation.us has information about, as the name suggests, about about the book, Base Nation, but about U.S. military bases abroad. In particular, um, people can learn more about the newer book, United States of War, at davefine.net. Well, listen, outstanding dialogue and interview tonight. Thank you for bringing light 
into darkness. And thank you for continuing to bring the light, brother. Thank you again. So um, have a good evening. Thank you. And we look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks for your great show, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Please stay tuned for our overnight broadcasting, which comes up next. You'll have to switch on over to our internet at koop.org. So join Tim for Nobody's Happy Hour. We take you out as we do every night with Land of Naivety. I'm